Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 474. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink. Yay, Lorraine. How are you? I am doing great. I'm about to spend a Thanksgiving at home with no talk of politics with my relatives, and I cannot flip and wait. How are you doing, Ryan? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great. But you know what? James Monroe Iglehart, our third in this merry trio, isn't here today, but you can watch the debut of his new show, Biggest Little Christmas Showdown. It's on HGTV. It's on Friday nights, and I'm so excited for him. I can't wait. I I remember seeing an image of him with a big hat on, which... Is all I care about. James in giant hats is terrific. James is so precious. And I watch a ton of HGTV. I find it very soothing to my nervous system. It's just like me and like people making their lives better. And then on the commercial breaks, I see James and I'm just like, what a what a human embodiment of a hug. Yeah, he's the best. Now, we will be getting into everything happening this week in Marvel, from games to comics to movies to TV and more. But, Lorraine, while we were in the throes of scary movie season, we had talked about The Invisible Man, and I (gasps) finally saw both The Invisible Man and Upgrade, the movie that was written and directed by the same person, Lee Wanell. Great. Loved Upgrade a ton. And Invisible Man was terrific, and I don't know if I can ever watch it again. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I love scary movies. You you all should know by now that I love scary movies. Mm-mm. It is it is too real for me, even though it is indeed about an invisible man. Too real. Yeah, really real. Uh, look, all of our new listeners, let us know if uh, there are other you know, scary movies we should check out, especially as we're getting into scary movie season. We talked about Krampus recently. I can't wait to hear the review from both you and James about Krampus. I know. I need, I, it is still um, actively on my list, but I took a little break to watch Queen's Gambit because I just, I, it was getting spoiled for me and I just had to watch it. You know, you know how the internet does. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, but speaking of our new listeners, we want to remind everyone that we are now on Sirius XM. Fui, 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 fui. Oh, yeah. I haven't fui, fui'd in so long. Oh my gosh, this is true. Wow. It's just me and my reggaeton horn that lives inside me. <laughs> fui, fui, fui. Yeah, we announced a bunch of stuff. We got to launch on launch day a day early on Sirius XM. So if you want to get this podcast, if you want to listen to it on a Thursday instead of a Friday, you know where to do it. Sirius XM gives it to you quicker. Uh, But there were also a bunch of really cool announcements that happened with ours, but we needed to wait for it to roll out before we could share it because uh, our episode was up first. But let's talk about some of the shows. I know you're really excited for Marvel's Wastelanders, Ryan. Yeah, Marvel's Wastelanders is going to be awesome. It's this big multi-part original scripted series coming in 2021 and um, if you've ever read the old man logan or old man quill or old man hawkeye comics you know sort of the tone and the feel of what this could be because that's what it is we're going to have old man star lord gray widow old man hawkeye and old man wolverine scripted series that will be on sirius xm lorraine and i got to really check out a lot of old man star lord um that's the the one that i'm most familiar with right now and it's freaking great i can't wait for more information to to come out about it yeah i'm really excited for everybody to check those out there's a really cool uh piece of artwork yeah steve mcniven who was the original artist on the first old man wolverine stories oh full circle i see what you did Mm -hmm. there 
there's also a ton more shows. Uh, there's Marvel Method, which indeed is hosted by Method Man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. M-E-T-H-O-D Man. Um, if, <laughs> if you're me right now, um, we all know Wu-Tang will never die. But if they did, they would roll over in their grave the way I just said that. But very informative to my high school experience. Lorraine, I had the single of... The first Method Man single oh. way back in the day. Do you yeah. remember the singles? Oh, yeah. I also had the Humpty Dance, man. Oh, man. On the jam. I love Digital Underground. Don't even get me started on Digital Underground because they're the best. If you're under 25, I am just so sorry. <laughs> I'm just so sorry that you have to wonder what these these ancient artifacts are. Uh, but the incredible Method Man, he's a huge Marvel fan, um, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily know. But he's going to have a bunch of celebrity guests on like Killer Mike and uh, DMC, Jamel Hill. And they're talking about fandom and comics and music. Uh, it, it should be really, really cool. You guys should all check it out. There's an episode up now. Is that right, Ryan? Yes. Yeah. The first episode uh, came out alongside our debut on SiriusXM. So stay tuned for more of those. Yeah. Uh, Lorraine, I know you are excited because we have a show that uh, you're you're kind of extremely heavily involved in that's also coming to Sirius XM. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. Uh, finally, I can talk about it. It's called Marvel's Declassified, and it comes out December 8th. And it's myself and Evan Narciss who wrote Rise of the Black Panther, as well as many other things. He's a well-known journalist, and he worked on Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales, the video game. But what we're basically doing is we are getting into Marvel's juicy secrets. We're we're opening the vault and getting the real tell about a lot of different stories in the Marvel universe, the real behind the scenes stuff. So these are really honestly deep researched <laughs> interviews and, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I wish I could say more. I'm trying not to spoil anything. <laughs> Everything know. is redacted um, until you get to actually hear it. But I, I'm just so excited for people to check it out. I, I do want to say um, this show exists because of you in large part, because one day you're like, hey, Lorraine, why don't you work on a pitch for a history podcast? That's a thing we should do. And I was like, yeah, I would love to. Thank you for the money, sir. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was still freelancing. And then me and Ben Morse, who uh, was a long time this week in Marvel co-host uh, before he went to go teach college kids. We sat and we worked on this pitch and we we worked it out and they were like, great, someday we'll sell this. And we, you know, went away for a while. And then one day we did and now it's here and it's a whole big, beautiful, different show and in a whole new iteration with a whole podcast team behind us because um, I, I edited the first pitch. <laughs> different, I know different those world. days. I remember those very well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's very exciting. It's really cool. I can't wait to to hear all the, the cool stories and listen to the people y'all talk to. Um, so again, that's December 8th for that. Uh, on top of that, anyone who is a Sirius XM subscriber, you'll also be the first to have access to our other Marvel podcasts, including This Week in Marvel. Get it on Thursdays, Marvel's Pull List. Get it before it hits all the other podcast feeds, um, Women of Marvel and more. Plus, there's even a brand new exclusive Spanish language version of Marvel's Wolverine The Long Night. So check it all out. It's great. That's awesome. Oh, you know what else is awesome? I just watched the trailer this morning mm -hmm. for Marvel's Avengers War Table with Kate Bishop. I just got to watch some of the new Kate Bishop footage of her in the game, the best Hawkeye. 
<laughs> she is she has so much swagger in the game i don't normally love to play sort of like um ranged fighters because i you have to aim and that's hard and i was like <laughs> i don't care i will learn to play ranged so that i can play as kate she's got really cool like equipment and powers because some of her abilities are like powered by repurposed aim tech and quantum energy so in the game she's using her amazing incredible bow and arrow skills but also like amping them up with technology and mm. and really cool stuff like she can do um double jumping and air dashing and teleporting and like teleporting away from uh folks and then attacking them from behind which is really sneaky and i'm all about it i like to cheat like that i think it's great and, and tons more she's got some really really cool abilities yeah, and I really love this story trailer that I watched because it's like her going to save the not as good Hawkeye, which is Clint Barton. Um, <laughs> so much shade for him. You can He's... direct all of your uh, uh, comments about Lorraine's opinions on Hawkeye to <laughs> at Lorraine Sink on Twitter. Uh, listen, if you want to let me know how you feel about that, you absolutely can. But I just want you to know that I am never wrong and I am always right. Can't disagree with any of that. No, but it looks it looks like a really cool storyline. There's a lot of twists and turns in it. She's kind of like getting the gang together to go and save him. We see like a glimpse, a little glimmer of the super adaptoid, which is looking sick. Mm-hmm. Right, right mm-hmm. from the the old Avengers comics too. Yeah, and you can play Kate Bishop in Marvel's Avengers on December eighth, the same day you can listen to Marvel's Declassified. So have a real Marvel day. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, Also, on the war table, if anybody hasn't watched it yet, definitely go check it out. It's on Marvel.com. It's on our YouTube and everywhere else. But they they teased the uh, Hawkeye operation, which is coming in early 2021, Future Imperfect, which, oh, that's the tasty juice. There's an Incredible Hulk story called Future Imperfect. It's from the 90s. It is one of my favorite all-time comics, and it is wonderful. It's by Peter David and uh, George Perez, who is a legend. And, man, it's really good. So I'm... Extra, extra excited for this one. Yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, Lorraine, you know I love me some tattoos. I have many, many tattoos, uh, mostly Godzilla. Truly, most of my tattoos are Godzilla related. But I also have a Marvel tattoo. And if any of our listeners out there want to get themselves all Marvel tatted up, maybe even for just funsies, we actually are releasing King in Black temporary tattoos, which is really super cool. Uh, Lorraine, what is King in Black? King in Black is a new epic event that is coming very soon. I believe it kicks off on December 2nd, and it's all about Null the Space God. That's all my guitar sounds. Uh, and and he's the symbiote god. He's not nice, and, you know, he's going to face the symbiotes. It's a very intense, dark s- story, and that first <laughs> issue is brutal yeah it's like a lot of lot of that uh but to go along with it uh it is written by donnie cates uh who's been writing a ton of amazing Mm -hmm. stuff for us for the last couple years so donnie is fully uh, has a ton of tattoos so he actually working with his own tattoo artist ian benderman uh they have created these king and black number one temporary tattoos there's even going to be tattoo variant covers for the series um but there's a bunch of them and you know they're they're going to be out there you can get yourself some temporary king and black tattoos what if i don't want it to be temporary then you take it to your tattoo artist and tell them i want this but forever give me the pain and they will do that okay what if i say but 
easy on the pain, buddy. No. Do you have any tattoos? I do. You know how bad, it feels. It was a bad choice. Yeah, I, I worked in a tattoo. tattoo parlor, Ryan. Do you, you not know this story? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you was a piercing girl, right? apprentice. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> I man. stabbed people's tongues. Great job. Thanks. Oh, that's got to be like really exciting, though, to be able to just like, all right, hold still. Clank. I have no idea. I am such a nervous wreck about most things, but I was like, sure, let me poke a hole in your body. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> like now as an adult, like a real adult, I'm like, that seems I it's like the same reason why I'm not a surgeon. I just like should not cut people. But at that point in my life, I felt like it was OK. But you know what? We all we all grow and change. It's true. It's true. Uh, also, when it comes to King of Black, we wanted to do something fun to make sure uh, folks can dive into the series as best as possible. So on Marvel Unlimited, our amazing subscription platform, uh, which has over 28,000 digital comics, uh, we've made Venom issues one through five from the 2018 series and the first two issues of Absolute Carnage completely free. All you need is the Marvel Unlimited app. Now, you don't even have to have a subscription, but if you do have a subscription, then you can just keep reading. Um, these comics are going to be free through December 14th. Also, for our show, Marvel's Pull List, that I co-host, we are going to have two awesome episodes dedicated to King and Black. Uh, the first one is a creator commentary about Venom Number 1 with Donnie and Ryan Stegman, the artist, and then a creator commentary about King and Black Number 1 about a week after the book has come out. So... Stay tuned for all that. Um, really, we, we go deep into these comics and, and the creative process behind all of them. It's a lot of fun. I will be in the background playing a guitar, but it won't be a guitar. It'll just be going. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, there was, um, I believe there was a band called Judd Judd that did that, like <gasps> an actual band. Those people um, get me. Have you ever heard of the band Caninus, um, which was a like super heavy like deathy band um, that was a side project from friends of mine uh, who are in the band Indecision, whose lyrics I have tattooed on my arm um, and the band Most Precious Blood, Justin Brandon, who is now a politician in New York City. Um, but Justin and Rachel, they had female pit bull terriers, Budgie and Basil, and they started a band with them where the, the, the dogs growling would do the vocals. Uh, and it's That's... awesome. Caninus. C-A-N-I-N-U-S. Go look him up. Freaking oh rules. God. It's I got to awesome. get Robot in a band because when he growls, he's like, <laughs> it, it's going to rule. You yeah. don't even know. Back on track. Back okay. on track. Away from <laughs> Pitbull rock and roll songs <laughs> and, and back into the Venomverse. For uh, those who've successfully completed the Venom Cup, they got uh, early access to the Venom outfit in Fortnite. Um, but if, if you didn't do it, don't panic. It's now available in the item shop. And it's really, really cool, actually, because you can see the symbiote move around on the outfit as you play. So it's like, we are alive. <laughs> Anyways, in addition to the Venom outfit, um, players can also grab his back bling uh, the Venom Glider and Emote in the item shop. So if you didn't get to play it, don't worry. Just go pick it up in the shop. Yeah. And look, everybody, if you don't know, Marvel and Fortnite have come together and there's some wild, really cool stuff happening in Fortnite uh, throughout this entire season. The Marvel stuff is really ramping up. 
And if you want to hear our episode with Donald Mustard, Epic Games Worldwide Creative Director, uh, sort of the man on the on the Epic side who is leading the charge for the Marvel and Fortnite cool collaboration, you can check that out in episode number 469 just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was a fun one. And a lot of people got excited because he talked about a lot of cool stuff that is now like starting to really come to fruition. So check that out. Yeah. Did you start watching Marvel 616 yet? So I've seen about three episodes. I'm skipping around a little bit, um, but I have been singing the praises of the first episode to anyone and everyone (laughs) I can talk to about it. Oh, it's so good. There are so many great episodes. You know, each one is a documentary that's helmed by a different filmmaker, and they're all exploring sort of different corners of the Marvel Universe, and they are streaming now on Disney+. Plus. There are so many really good ones. Also, just shout out to episode five. I'm in it. Yeah. It's really sweet watching all the the fans um, like tweet to you about it and, yeah. and getting so excited to see you. And you did a great job. Um, oh, that's thanks, one friend. about like uh, fandom and cosplay and really cool stuff. And there's episodes about, um, you know, the sort of the process behind comics, which is a really fun one that has danced a lot and a lot of, a lot of neat stuff in that one. And of course, the first episode is fantastic it is all about japanese spider-man and i love it so much what you're looking at me well i was gonna say um a hot tip you guys if you want to hear tom brevoort roast dan slot for not getting for not getting his his books in on time who it is spicy i laughed so hard because tom does he's like the honey badger he just don't care (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you don't care indeed. Uh, we're talking about Marvel 616. And actually, this episode, we have an interview with the director of that Japanese Spider-Man episode of Marvel 616, David Gelb. That one was a blast to do, like, just talking to someone who shares a passion about weird parts of the Marvel Universe always makes me happy. And um, David gets it. He really gets it. I'm excited for everyone to actually hear our chat with him because I just want to like have lived his life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But anyway, if you haven't watched that episode of Marvel 616 and you have Disney Plus, I would suggest go checking it out. Watch that episode because we do talk about some stuff that does pop up in the episode uh, in our conversation with David. So it'll give you a little bit more context. But if you haven't had a chance to watch yet, don't worry. We're not spoiling too much. We're just getting into sort of the behind the scenes of making a really cool documentary. And let's talk with David Gelb right now. Hey, David Gelb, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. We're so excited for Marvel 616 because you get to get into so many origin stories of different corners of Marvel. And so we have to sort of ask, David, what is your Marvel origin story? Oh, man. I mean... For me, it's it's my dad taking it was like our weekend activities. He would take me to the comic book shop and I would just get everything Spider-Man. It was just my favorite. But the real origins of me in comics, I think, was like I think it was like 1990. And I think it was like my I want to say my seventh birthday or something. And somebody gave me like a big pack of like a bunch of random Marvel comics. And um it was just like really, really exciting to me. And it was just like, oh, it was like Avengers West Coast or like a whole bunch of a big variety, of pa- a big variety pack. And that was just awesome. And that kind of like opened my mind to the whole Marvel universe. I love that. I, I remember getting big variety packs at the comic shop at this like random indoor flea market that I used to go to. And just like that sense of discovery is 
almost something I think we've we've lost because the internet gives us almost everything <laughs> that that we could want. Um, it's so easy to to get a handle on things, which is kind of perfect for us as we're going to talk to you this episode about Japanese Spider-Man and and the episode of Marvel Six One Six because you can't really get a lot of Japanese Spider-Man on the internet. It's one of the the rare things that people just can't get their hands on these days. Oh yeah. And I mean, you know, that's one of the things that was, it's like, has always been a thrill to me is like, can I show someone something that they haven't seen before that I, and if I think it's super cool, I bet that they're going to think it's cool. And I love to like share things like that. And so that's something I've always tried to do throughout my work. And then even as a little kid, you know, when I like, I, I got to go to Japan when I was really little and I came back with like a Power Ranger action figure and none of my friends were like, what is that? And it was just like, it was just like really exciting to be able to bring back cool stuff um, that people haven't seen before. So we're going to do that with Japanese Spider-Man. This seems like a really perfect thing for you because, you know, I obviously um, I think my first introduction to your work was Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which I watched several times before my first trip to Japan, strangely obsessively. Have you always been very sort of connected to Japanese culture or what got you interested in it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, always interested in Japanese culture. So the, basically because of my dad, um, my dad, um, uh, Peter Gelb, is the, he's currently the um, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. He's always been involved in music and like with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, he would travel to Japan as their press agent or sorry, as a manager. And I would go and um, like tag along on these trips. And so I first went when I was two, then when I was four, then when I was nine. And then a few more times and like I, I took Japanese language in school, became obsessed with manga, anime, Japanese culture, food, anything. And so, um, I mean, that it's just a big part of me. It's a big oh, part of my life. I love that. I'm so jealous. I'm so obsessed with Japan after my trip. I just want to be there all the time. <laughs> yeah, I miss it. I, I, miss I can't it. wait to go someday. Someday. Um, we, we're, we're talking about different, you know, all these different parts uh, sort of. I want to think about how they, they came together for you. What was it about documentary filmmaking that you started to connect to that you first experienced that really started putting you down this path? Oh, sure. I mean, I became a documentarian out of necessity because I was like, I, I'm going to go to USC film school and then I'm just going to come out. I'm, I'm going to make Star Wars. I'll make a new Star Wars movie. Maybe um, I can get into Harry. I can maybe I can direct Harry Potter seven, you know, <laughs> it's like totally delusional. Um, in film school and they you know no not really realizing like how long a journey it is for directors to reach the you know to make those kinds of big movies um so you know i had my a, a computer and um you know i had my own camera and uh so as like a summer job i was making these little documentary shorts for like charities like the children's aid society in new york city or i would do um behind the scenes bits for like music videos or movies or or, or whatever and um it became like, I realized that, you know, if you're, you're able to do a doc kind of entirely on your own, like you don't need actors, you don't, you know, if you can find a great story, you can do it on your home computer. And like, this is like a big breakthrough, I think, um, that happened like a few, you know, I guess it's been a while now, but early 2000s, mid 2000s, like the quality of what you're able to do in film as a single person has just grown, has just exploded. And so, you know, Jiro Dreams of Sushi was really just made by myself. I had a translator slash assistant in Japan 
And then um, an editor that I worked with who's like was my college roommate. And, um, you know, we were able to make this like very professional looking movie without costing a whole lot of money except for the equipment itself. And um, that was like a big shift. And so I, I, that's kind of what like launched me into documentary was really being able to, and, and Jiro came later, but being able to have a studio that you can completely control um, in your own room, <laughs> basically. And uh, I think that's like really exciting. And like, especially with like the tools now, how great these, I mean, I'm so jealous of young people now, the, the iPhone, I mean, just the iPhone mm -hmm. 12 is like an incredible camera. And I mean, all of these like different tools that are just like the motion control tools that people have that you can just buy off of like links on Instagram. I mean, I wish I had that stuff. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I think that nonfiction filmmaking is kind of hitting this stride and like people are excited about it. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's so cool too, because I mean, the stories are so real. I find myself thinking about the relationship between Jiro and his two sons all the time and just what a, a crazy dynamic it is, you know, between, you know, both trying to live up to their father's expectations. But I'm curious for you, how how did you get to the place where you got to work on Marvel's 616? How did it come about? Well, since making um, Jiro James' Sushi, which was like, as I mentioned, was made by like three or four people. We really um, had to, I, I had to expand my group dramatically to make the show Chef's Table, which is now on Netflix. And then from there, my uh, partner on Chef's Table, Brian McGinn, and then another producer, uh, Jason Sturman, who's been making incredible documentaries like, you know, Icarus, Winter on Fire. I mean, he's one of the best. Um, the three of us teamed up and we created a production company called Supper Club. And we just happened to be fortunate enough to be talking to Disney. They need content for their new platform. The idea of doing a doc series on Marvel Comics came up and we, I, you know, we leapt at it because I just, you know, I love Marvel Comics and like, this is what we do is, is make doc series. So it was just really, really an awesome opportunity. And, uh, and here we are. Were you sad there was no food involved? No, you know, I... I, uh, I, I still eat well. I mean, we're on like, I think we're, 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 we're beginning to start prep on like our ninth season of chef's table or whatever. And we have street food. I mean, I, I still eat well, it's still going on, but, um, okay, you know, gotcha. I, I want to make films about all my interests. And so this was just like such an incredible moment for us. Yeah. We're, I, we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics about, um, about the episode that you directed the Japanese Spider-Man episode, but you know, overall, what did you and, and the, the Supper Club team want to explore? Were there specific themes or topics or things that, you know, you were like, oh, we want to get into this with Marvel? Or was it, you know, Marvel mm. coming and saying, look, we have this story and this thing. What was that, you know, creative mm -hmm. back and forth like? I mean, it was a very tight collaboration with Marvel Comics. Um, we really, uh, you know, they had a number of stories. You know, they, first off, they invited us to, to their offices, which was a super cool trip. We got to meet with you know all kinds of great creators, editors, and 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 really kind of like learn a lot about the landscape of Marvel Comics. We then um, you know received a whole bunch of they had tons of ideas of different things, some of which we thought would really work well as a documentary film, some of them not so much. And we really kind of honed down on like what do, what kind of stories do we want to tell here? We want to tell stories about people, and all of our films are about kind of like different kind of sectors of the people either creating the comics, the fans who have devoted themselves to the fandom of the comics. I mean, the, the, just the toys or like the cosplay, we have an episode. 
um, we have a, an incredible uh, <laughs> episode where people are putting on like uh, high school like theater productions uh, based on stories in, in, in Marvel. And so we really wanted to focus on people. And then of course we have this uh, a wonderful episode about the um, the unsung heroes of Marvel Comics who have been behind the scenes, many of which were women that never really received the credit or spotlight that we think that they deserved. And so we wanted to tell stories about exceptional people and and and, and um, people who would inspire the the viewers themselves to try to you know whatever it whatever their interest is whether it's comics or not you know to try to you know go and do something I think that that's kind of like what we were going for. So you also kind of got the sweetest cherry on top because you got to direct the first episode. So did you like immediately call dibs? Were you like? I get Japanese Spider-Man. <laughs> well, we didn't know that it was going to be the first episode. You know, that's something that we worked on with Disney Plus. But it certainly is quite a uh, enticing hook for people who are coming to this series. Um, I definitely did call dibs on the idea of <laughs> Japanese Spider-Man. Um, you know, I mean, that's a little bit of the privilege of being both the executive producer and a director on it. So um, it was something that was meaningful to me personally because uh, you know Japan, Japanese culture has been so important to me. I was aware of Japanese Spider-Man from going, you know, basically occasionally like uh, a manga store or like, you know, that sells like action figures, manga kind of Japanese stuff would have it playing on a VHS. Actually, I remember they would have, or sorry, it was a DVD. They, there was a DVD set It was uh, that was sold in Japan and they played, I was like, what is this? This is like totally weird. And it was something that I just kind of like thought was really interesting and bizarre because I like Spider-Man. But, you know, I never really thought much of it. But then when this idea kind of came back, I was like, oh, my God, we have to figure out how did this thing get made? How did they take Spider-Man and transform it in every way except for the suit and, like, the themes of being a hero and using your powers for good and, like, responsibility and stuff? Where you have Spider-Man is inside of a basically what looks like a Power Ranger robot throwing a sword and exploding a giant Japanese folklore monster and then you cut to Spider-Man inside and he's like doing these like Power Ranger hand symbols. I'm like, what is this? How did this happen? And I had no idea that Japanese Spider-Man predates Power Rangers. And a lot of the things that we saw in Japanese Spider-Man actually became a trend that led to so much of pop culture and nobody even knows it. So like, this is like something that people have to see. And the reason we haven't seen it, it was by design. You know, they wanted to keep it entirely in Japan. And so that's why we haven't seen it is because it's so different from the Spider-Man that we know that they were like, okay, well, you keep it just in Japan, then it's okay. And now we have a chance to show the world. And I'm just so excited about it. Yeah. It, it makes me so happy because I, I've been a Marvel 14 years now and I was part of the team that helped get the the episodes on the website, you know, with Harry Go and John Cirilli and like just championing yeah. Like you guys, the world, what are what are you doing if you're not watching the greatest show that's ever been created and explaining to people like, you know, we, we have all these amazing Super Sentai series and we have all these cool ideas because of something that, you know, Marvel had a hand in. And it just watching the doc made me so happy. It was like being able to to know that millions and millions and millions of people are going to watch this and, and just like see how cool it was. And then see how like how heartfelt everything is which is one of the things that really touched me about watching the the episode yeah yeah i mean it's a film the documentary you know this episode it's about filmmaking it's about creating something 
And it's like, you've had all these people who are so passionate about what they were doing, you know, whether it's the special effects guy who was just risking his life every episode over and over again. The stunt guy is just like being blown up by mortars and he's like, okay, I'll do another That was nuts, dude. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I mean, what was really cool was just the process of reaching out to them and their excitement in that somebody is going to be talking about this show because again, it, it disappeared. I mean, it's not part of the Marvel canon. They didn't want it out in the world at the time. And it just kind of has been like this little niche kind of hidden thing amongst, you know, rare DVDs that you could find on eBay. And now everybody's going to see it. And so, yes, it's about filmmaking. It's about like, um, I mean, just like utter perseverance. I mean, their their schedules and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm a bit of a film nerd, you know, being a filmmaker and stuff. So I love like the behind the scenes kind of stuff. But I mean, nobody has ever seen a behind the scenes of like a move, a show that's made like this, where like this guy is actually climbing Tokyo Tower with no rope. I mean, they are doing special effects and things that just people had not seen before. This is the first transforming robot. And it's (laughs) Spider-Man. It's a spaceship that turns into a robot and has a giant sword. And I mean, (laughs) it's just like, it's just so crazy. And it's so awesome. You know, I'm wondering what it what the creative process was like, because, you know, as as you were saying, these weren't out in the world for a long time. You know, Ryan and the team were trying to get them out into the 2000s, you know, which is basically 30 years, like the 30 year uh, anniversary. So what was it like starting this process? Uh, How did you approach it creatively when, you know, you're you've got 30, 40 years of history standing between you, you're in a country where maybe you're not as fluent or your crew might not be as fluent as everybody else there. What are the challenges and how do you kind of face all of that? Oh my gosh, that's a lot. There's, there's a lot <laughs> to answer that, that question. Well, I say the first thing, and this was super fun, it was getting a link to every episode of Japanese Spider-Man and just sitting down and just watching the entire series through over a couple of days. And that's just, it was just, uh, I mean, because at first you're kind of like, okay, like we're going to be kind of like making fun of it a little bit. But then you start to realize like this show is actually amazing. Like this is like genuinely entertaining and um, really actually heartfelt and like emotional at times. And like, you know, Takuya, who is uh, the main character um, played by Shinji Toto, who's sort of like the Japanese version of Peter Parker, not exactly a, um, you know, a, a science nerd in high school who eventually becomes a photographer. He is a stunt motorcycle driver. And, um, you know, but his father dies very early, you know, it's kind of instead of Uncle Ben, his dad is killed by Professor Monster, who is, um, you know, an alien emperor who's coming to Earth um, <laughs> to dominate the planet. Um, and he came back in samurai times. And there's like a whole bunch of backstory. And it's like totally, totally um, wacky. But it's really, um, you know, it's about like a, a, a family, you know, dealing with the loss of their father. And, um, you know, he's been chosen to become uh, the Spider-Man. He's been injected with the alien um, Spider-Man venom and um, now has the access to Marveler, his spaceship, and uh, he's going to fight Professor Monster. And every episode has this, like, crazy villains, crazy special effects and stunts, and, like, a lot of comedy as well. So, like, the show is awesome. So that was, like, a great place to start. And then we went on to just, like, basically do all the research. We had an amazing team of researchers looking up everything that's been written about it, looking up the people involved, looking up the whole story. And it all comes down to this guy, Gene Pelk, who was the Marvel liaison in Japan. 
And he was going around Japan trying to make deals for Marvel characters because Marvel Comics, as much as as much as the Japanese people loved manga, loved comic books and 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 kind of superhero characters, Marvel Comics never caught on in Japan during that period. And so he was determined to monetize the Marvel properties there. So he was able to make this deal with Toei, which is kind of like, you know, the biggest TV movie studio. You know, they were behind all the Super Sentai kind of series there. And then they made this incredible show. And so we just kind of like pulled that thread and then reached out to everybody that we could, that we could get a hold of that was involved in the show and just did these, you know, we went to Japan, shot interviews with all of them. And then we spent a ton of time editing. I mean, so much of the work in documentary is done in the edit and just putting together the story about like, how did this thing get made? And then how has it changed the kind of like the whole kind of giant robot you know, super Sentai kind of world, you know? There's a million things I'm, I'm like fascinated and curious about because I love the show. Um, the, For you, though, what was it like going back to just being back in Japan for this purpose? Because it's, it's a little bit different than Jiro, just a, a tiny little bit. It was amazing. It was amazing because I was <laughs> I was going to Japan and I was going to just like anime stores and action figure stores and like looking at stuff and like, and like, yeah, this is my job. This is my job to do this stuff. Um, <laughs> So that was pretty, pretty, that was pretty cool. We went to um, uh, Bandai, you know, one of the biggest like toy makers and like shows and they, they, they brought out all of like the, um, you know, the original, um, you know, action figures and stuff. And um, we got to photograph those. We shot some of these beautiful shots of these, um, of these uh, robots and, you know, his GP7, his car. <laughs> he has a car that has machine guns in it, of course. That's Spider-Man for you in Japan. Um, There's a great moment with Gene where he's like, I never got the car. He never got his own car. I was like, oh, poor Gene. Gene is, Gene is such a great character because he's so dry. And he's like, yeah, the car, uh, you know, the car's named after me, by the way. I'm like, oh, how did that feel? And he's like, well, I didn't get one. So, you know. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, Gene. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, meeting these people was awesome. I mean, they were really, really interesting characters. And um, really, really passionate about what they're doing and just so excited to share the story and to know that people are going to see it finally because, you know, they thought that this was something that was lost and forgotten. Oh, man, I it's really is cr- kind of crazy because now in Japan, you see Spider-Man everywhere. Like he's attached to buildings all over Tokyo, all over Osaka, like every city. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. everywhere. He's yeah. very prevalent. But what was it like uh, getting to talk to some of the actors about their portrayals? I thought it was really particularly interesting the portrayal of, uh, you know, Spider-Man's love interest and how she was sort of a different character for the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought that that was really interesting. And one of my favorite things to ask them about is like, how did you first hear of Spider-Man? And she was like, I had no idea what it was. Like, I had no idea what, what what's a spider. It's a Spider-Man. And <laughs> like trying to uh, figure that out and just not having any idea about how big this thing is in America at all. Or like, you know, the importance of it in American culture. I mean, they just don't, they're not aware of it at all. And I thought that that was really interesting. I think that she took a really, uh, has a really kind of cool character because she's like, she's tough, you know, she's no nonsense, but she never suspects that her boyfriend is Spider-Man until like way, (laughs) way later in the series. And it's like, every time it's like, okay, they're off, she's on the back of his motorcycle. There's like a giant brain creature is attacking a truck or something crazy is happening. And then he's like, oh, I got to go. And then he just leaves her there, <laughs> motorcycles away. 
and then inevitably spider-man shows up and it's like nope no no suspicion whatsoever <laughs> um so i mean there's just like a lot of like really funny things and i think that was like kind of uh tongue-in-cheek and a little bit intentional um at times about like kind of how oblivious the other characters are of the fact that you know he's right there and uh, i thought that was really really funny um what else i mean i think that she uh she adds a lot to it and you know um i i think that that's kind of like the heart of the show is like the relationship between um, Takuya, that's the Peter Parker character, and his family. Um, it's just like really funny and it's like really cute. We've talked a little bit about um, the, you know, the robots, the the designs and everything. But I really was, I love the, the bits that you had with the actual designer of Leopardon, just because that's like the creative process, like getting a peek into his creative process and how that just, like he was like, okay, all right, I, yeah, I got this. Here's this, here's this stuff. What do you guys think? And it's like fascinating and how that, as we've talked about, completely changes, honestly, popular culture. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when they were adapting Spider-Man, you know, the biggest problem that they had was like, okay, like in Japan, like they get Batman. He's got a cave. He's got a car. He's got a plane. You know, these are the things that they need to sell toys. And that was sort of like the business model for the Sentai series was that you would have a figure and then he would have a bunch of accessories and vehicles and other things like that. So you could sell all of these toys. And so for Spider-Man, in order for to greenlight the show, they had to invent a whole bunch of additional stuff for Spider-Man to use so they could sell it as toys. And this guy just totally straight faced is just like, yeah, so, you know, I thought it would have, it would be in the shape of a Sphinx. And I, and I, <laughs> and I asked him, I'm like, why, you know, did you ever think it was weird that you might have a Sphinx kind of character or like a leopard-like character or it's even called Le Leopardon? You know, he's a spider. You know, he's supposed to be like, you know, it's Spider-Man. And he's just like, no, I just, I thought it was cool. <laughs> like, that's it. Just like totally deadpan. And, um, you know, the transforming robot is this incredibly innovative idea. And then later, Marvel licensed a bunch of Toei characters and created a comic book called, I believe it was called Shogun Warriors, which um, one of the characters kind of became the inspiration for Transformers. And I mean, Transformers is huge and nobody really knows about Japanese Spider-Man. So this little seed, you know, created all this stuff out of it. I just think that's like really, really interesting. The economics of it drove what a lot of people think is like super cool about, you know, Power Rangers or any of this stuff. It's also interesting, you know, when you're creating these characters that are essentially to kind of, you know, for sales for toys and things and encourage that you're also making your job so hard as a filmmaker or as a, a television maker, I guess, for that time, because you suddenly have all of these amazing creatures or transforming robots. But how do you do that on screen becomes an incredibly interesting prospect. Uh, did you did you learn any interesting things about uh, the 70s television craft at that time? Well, sure. And, and, and it's that most of what you're seeing on screen is actually happening. So when you see the car, I mean, it's a miniature being pulled by a string. I mean, so many of these things are, are just real. Like there's no, you know, we're so used to today taking, we kind of like take for granted. I mean, you look at Avengers Endgame and I mean, the, they are literally bringing the most epic, insane comic book battles that you could only imagine could be drawn. You know, it's just like, far beyond what is actually possible. And they are photo real and they just look absolutely incredible to the point where you're not even thinking about the special effects. You're just like, you're in the action, you're in the story. Um, 
And to go back and see the kind of handmade craft that it takes to, you know, basically, you know, they're hand painting, they're building these actual robots, they're doing kind they're, they're, they're just like kind of superimposing little explosions that they're actually doing. And then they're trying to be as efficient with it as possible, because they had such a low budget, it's really a shoestring budget, because it's a much smaller market, much lower budget than even American action TV shows. Um, so it's like they are doing everything they can to make it to tell the story, make it look real, and you know they said that necessity is the mother of invention, and I think it's totally at play here because I think the techniques that they did to make it look like Spider-Man is crawling, building upside-down sets, or like just trying to do basic things, like and a lot of it just involves like he's got a rope tied around him, and they position the camera so that you can't see it. Um, really, really interesting, um, and I think a lot of the stunt work a lot of kind of martial arts kind of feeling was kind of infused into Jap uh, into uh, Spider-Man's fighting style. And I, I feel like a lot of these kind of moves and stuff have really actually kind of survived or, and, and have, you know, kind of set the standard for the kind of like action stunt work that you'll see in later Super Sentai series. And, you know, even, I, I think that that DNA exists in Spider-Man today. Um, it, it, it's really, really interesting. Like if you watch it, with knowing what comes next in you know film and television history like you can kind of see the roots of a lot of stuff um and it's really fascinating how they did it there's a, a channel on i think it's like pluto tv called tokushatsu and which plays a bunch of super sentai series and you know watching i've, I've watched a lot of them and uh you, you watch like the ones that are like closer to the the late 70s early 80s going on and like how much they pick from from Japanese Spider-Man is is wild. Um, the the last thing I, I just wanted to ask uh, was, um, you know, in talking with Marvel Comics, did they have they did they tell you or show you any of the the recent appearances for Japanese Spider-Man and Marveler and Leopardon? Because we've introduced the characters into the Marvel continuity in uh, the Spider-Verse comics, which then introduced the, you know, like influenced the, those films. And um, we've, we've done some one-offs with the characters and like Professor Monster and everything else. It's, I'm so excited. Oh yeah. Something that Marvel has always done really well is allowing different versions of a superhero to exist without needing it to be, you know, a single perfect canon, which I think is really, really interesting. And in this case, like, I think that Spider-Verse shows how you, you can have different versions of this character, but you keep the, the theme is there, you know, the feeling is there and it's just like a different version. I think it's super cool. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just excited for Japanese Spider-Man to just, I want it to become like, as I, I want it to become like a staple, you know, I really hope it does. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in closing, you know, what are you most excited for, for folks to see when they finally get their eyeballs on it? When people watch um, Marvel 616, you know, I, I, I think that the idea is to show kind of these stories that are adjacent to Marvel Comics. Like if you're interested in Marvel, if you're interested in, 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 in filmmaking or just emotional stories or if you're just interested in people at all, you know, I think that you'll be able to find some really, really emotional, moving stories. And it's just sort of like it's, it's, it's these stories that take place just adjacent to the comics, adjacent to the movies. You know, it's just beneath the surface. And it's really a story. Many of the films, or I call, I call them films, they're episodes, um, are, uh, are about fans and they're for fans. 
you know, and I think that's what's really cool. It's kind of a shining a spotlight on the people who are so affected and moved by the stories that they've read in Marvel and what they want to give back to it and their contribution. And so, um, you know, whether it's about, you know, we have a really interesting episode about kind of like the cosplay kind of world in Marvel, the toys. Um, and, and, and I think that's really, really interesting to see how these fans, when they, they take in the things that they're inspired by, and then they create their own stuff that I think is just like really, really interesting. So, um, yeah, I, th I think it's, it's inspiring stories. It's adjacent to Marvel. If you're a Marvel fan, great. If you're not a Marvel fan, I think there's a lot to love here as well. So it's really something um, that I hope that we get to continue to do. And I think it's really, uh, I'm, I'm just really mostly um, just blown away by the incredible work of all of our team. When we made this series, we wanted a different director for each episode so that you know, each one has its distinct feel and point of view. And you know, everybody just did a really, really tremendous job. So you know, I just want to say congratulations to our team. I'm really, really proud of them. Yeah, we're psyched. It's great. I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm going to put on my outfit later by throwing it at my head and then having it appear on my body. <laughs> oh, yeah, just like, you know, touch your wrist. And then and all you have to do is just cut to a zipper being zipped up. And then, whoa, you're Spider-Man. That sounds like... <laughs> I mean, I'm just, uh, I just can't wait for the memes. Oh, delicious memes. Thank you, David. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to David Gelb. That was such a delight getting to talk with him. You guys pop over immediately to watch the episode. Go do it. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's on right now. All episodes of the series are up there. They are delightful. Just go get up in that Disney Plus app. We'll wait. Actually, just pause this and then come back. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait because I want to talk about next week's question of the week because next week our guests are Donnie Cates, Ryan Stegman, and Devin Lewis, uh, the writer, artist, and editor of the brand new King in Black comic book series. Uh, this one's going to be really, really cool. We're going to talk about the process and working together and all kinds of fun stuff. And so thinking about all that, my question of the week to everyone out there is, would you like to have your very own symbiote suit? Now think about that for a second. You have the symbiote suit, so cool, you can, maybe you can fly around, you know, grow yourself some wings, you can swing around, you can have big gnarly teeth and a tongue and all kinds of weird stuff and you're, you're all cool and you can do all disguises, all the powers that Venom has or Carnage or whatever. But at the same time, maybe the symbiote suit like goes off and does stuff with your body while you're sleeping or maybe it like eats up all your body because it needs fuel and you're not eating enough and then it's like eat your friend steve yeah you don't want to eat steve you got to balance maybe there's a lot of good potentially a lot of bad are you strong enough i don't know um i would say you know Currently, I'm married, so I don't need a symbiote suit. But if I were in core by myself, I would a thousand percent take a symbiote suit because I would never be alone. Just hanging out and getting hugs. <laughs> That's a great answer. I like that. I would 100% take a symbiote suit. Oh, my gosh. I would love it. It would be gnarly and weird. And I, man, that would be so much fun. Would you let Catherine Grace have one? Yeah. Okay, great. Because then we could have little symbiote suits together and we can, you know, swing around and fly. Symbiote and do all slumber that stuff. party. Oh, we, 
we do have lots of matching pajamas as a family. And so <laughs> that's one of the true joys is getting matching pajamas <laughs> as a family. It's great. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is fatherhood in a nutshell. Symbiote suits to Jimmy Jams. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, uh, for your answers, dear listeners, you can tweet your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to us at twimpodcast at marvel.com. That's T-W-I-M-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at marvel.com or you can even send a message or you can even send a message to our facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in marvel yeah we got some uh tweets and messages here from our friends out in the internet land uh last week we asked you guys what's your favorite mech suit in the marvel universe and marvel man at spidey boy Three said the Japanese Spider-Man mech is definitely the best, but I would choose the anti-transformer suit made by Tony Stark in the new Avengers Transformers Volume 1 as a close second just because it was awesome and huge and because I love Transformers. But, you know, you just listened to that interview, so now you know that those are all like their cousins and they're having Thanksgiving together remotely right now. <laughs> I, I like the idea of... Of, of a Thanksgiving there. Um, I love that new Avengers Transformers series. It took me a second to remember, but it was like from within my first year at Marvel uh, is when it came out. And it was just such a cool partnership. And like the first, the like the, the cover of the comic has Optimus Prime, like old school cartoon Optimus Prime and Captain America. And it's, it's freaking rad. So really, really neat. So that's a, that's a great pick. Uh, our pal Marvel man. Uh, we got an answer in here from the Kawaii Prince at Colin J saying, uh, I think the best mech is the Iron Allfather in War of the Realms number four. I found mm. it so badass flipping the page and seeing Odin just kicking some dark elf butts. I enjoy the character design page at the end of the issue as well. Colin, I mean, come on, War of the Realms, one of the greatest comic book stories of all time i have a freaking tattoo of war of the realms on my arm i'm with you a thousand percent yeah this next one is somebody we were just talking about ben morse as in at ben j morse uh who said i'm so proud of what agent m and i built and what he's been able to continue with lorraine sink and james m eichelhart it's huge that this week in marvel has made it this far Shout out to a bunch of people here listed, but uh, Harry Go, Mark Strom, and everybody else behind the scenes, including every intern. Uh, yeah, there was actually I heard from a couple of our former interns who were on the show over over time. Mm -hmm. Like we would bring on the interns, they would you know be a part of it. Alex um, Lopez. Yeah, Alex Lopez, who's on our um, social media team. Tucker Marcus, who's my co-host for mm -hmm. Marvel's Pull List, is a former intern who who was on This Week in Marvel. So, yeah, it's pretty great. Though Everybody who has worked on the show has contributed in amazing ways to help us get to where we are now, including everybody who is currently behind the scenes. So it's, it's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. We got a great tweet here from the tech lord at Lex Pendragon, who says, Hearing Clark Gregg for the first time since Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. went off the air makes me miss him all over. Oh, it's so nice. I know. Um, and that, of course, is from last week's episode. We get a little snippet from our Clark Gregg interview, which we did, gosh, a while ago. Um, so I'm glad we could have Clark on uh, a little bit for our first Sirius XM episode. Yeah. 
Uh, next up, we have Dan Everett at DanEv1985, who said, hey, you two kids. Actually, he didn't say that. He said, hey, Agent M and Lorraine Sink. I hope you are both well and safe. To answer your question of the week, I'd say Tom DeLong, if he's not busy, uh, in response to our question about who you'd like to hear or see on the show, it would be great to see if you guys could get the scoop on the new Angels and Airwaves album and the Monsters of California movie. Dan, that's a great suggestion. We'll we'll see what we can do. I know you know it seems like you are a uh, a fan of uh, Blink One Eighty Two and and everything that's sort of come out of that. So if you go back way back into our archives, episode number two hundred and fifty point five, we actually have a Blink One Eighty Two special. It's not exactly what you're asking for, but it's a little bit of something for you there. We got more tweets coming in. This one from Karis Pollard at a Karis Pollard saying. Overall, her uh, comic book pick of the week, a.k.a. her This Week in Marvel of the Week, goes to Spider-Woman. It's got humor, action, Captain Marvel. What more could a girl want? Oh, the amazing art, perhaps? And for our sister podcast, Marvel's Pullist, she says it gets the pulley for most on-page laughter. Oh, I mean, Captain Marvel and Spider-Woman together is just a real chef's kiss. They're besties. They're ridiculous. They it's just are good vibes. Yeah. And I wanted to give a shout out to uh, at this Bradley T on Instagram. He sent me a DM with some kind words about last week's episode. Just saying great job. Loving it. Shout out a little bit of positivity for our pal Stiltman. Um, what about, about Lady Stiltman, though? Where's her love? What about her? She's a tall woman wearing stilettos. <laughs> stiltletos? Stilettos. Ah! Why isn't that a thing? Holy crap, I got to get Tom Breward on the phone. We got to end this episode. <laughs> that that sounds about the right time to do it. This episode of This Week of Marvel is produced by Percy Verlin, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to you, our listeners. We are grateful to you all for hanging out with us every week. And of course, especially grateful that we are not turkeys because it would have been a bad week. Gobbledy gobbledy. I'm Ryan. <laughs> And this is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>